Paul, in this episode, we're going to continue our conversation from episode 14 to talk about a lunch that I had with a man who denies the existence of institutional racism. And again, what made this so noteworthy is that it was a black man. This is a continuation of our discussion and breakdown of a LinkedIn message that you received from a white man who denies racism and racial equity work. And like in that discussion, there are many points from this lunch that are worth talking about. Because again, it's important for us to be open to people who disagree with us and most importantly, respond to those disagreements. And one of the big takeaways for me from that lunch is how do we succinctly respond to someone who flatly denies racism in something as short as a workday lunch? So let's dig into it. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. Okay, Paul, so a little more context here. This man runs inclusion at a school, and I have connections there, and they heard of our podcast and asked to meet for lunch to learn more. So throughout our conversation, as I mentioned, he denied the existence of institutional racism. And to clarify institutional racism, as we have talked about throughout this podcast, we pull from Ibram X. Kendi's definition of racism, which, again, is a marriage of racist policies and racist ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequities. We're just going to keep saying that as much as possible because it's so important to always remind ourselves. And so what we're really talking about here are racist policies, right? So when we hear institutional racism, systemic racism, we hear that a lot. What Kennedy says, and I agree, it's just much more tangible to say racist policies. So that's really what we're talking about here. So this gentleman at lunch stated that equity is unnecessary and that meritocracy, the idea that everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps equally, is the reality. He cited his own lived experiences that as a black man, he didn't have a ton of support growing up. And yet look at how he succeeded. It was an interesting position for me to be in. A white man pushing back to a black man why racism and racist policies do exist. And as part of our discussion, we talked about different ways that schools can address the success of all students, getting more diversity to the school, etc. And overall, it was a very respectful, engaging dialogue. We both recognized that we disagreed, but worked through that. And he saw the value in our podcast, at least. I was kind of waiting for him to be like, it's totally unnecessary. But he was like, no, it's good. It's needed. All right, so Paul, the first thing I just I just have to tell you and our listeners is that I was shook that a black man denied institutional racism. I honestly think in my many years of doing this work and all of the conversations I've had with people of color, this was the first time that that's ever happened to me, at least face to face. And so it really made me recognize my own racist idea. And the racist idea that I had is that all black people understand that racist policies exist and the impacts of racism. At the lunch, it was us two plus another white male faculty member. And I was going into it. I was like, oh, I'm going to sit down and this black guy and I are going to riff off one another about racism and the education system and ways that schools could address that. So I was really thrown off a bit. And why this is a racist idea, again, as Ibram X. Kennedy describes is if you lump all black folks or all white folks or all people of a racial identity together and speak for that group, so my all black people understand institutional racism, that's a racist idea. And it's also a good example of how a racist idea doesn't have to be inherently bad, right? It's not like inherently bad on the surface to to think that all black people understand racism, but it's still a racist idea. So it's a good reminder too of that good, bad binary. That's a part of that. So that was a good learning takeaway for me from this launch for sure. Yeah. And that reminds me of the word microaffirmations, which is something I've come across kind of recently. I think we all know about microaggressions, right? But microaffirmations is sort of these racist ideas that are sort of positive on the surface. So like seeing a tall black man and being like, I bet you're good at basketball. Oh, right. Right. And so on the surface, you'd be like, well, that's a compliment, right? Like you you look athletic, you look like you'd be able to dunk a ball. You'd think that'd be a compliment. But actually, 
embedded or, or beneath that is a racist idea that all tall black men or black men in general play basketball. So it's still sort of in the same category as microaggression, right? Uh, so just something something to be mindful. Of. But but I also hold the racist belief that all people of color believe that institutional racism exists. You know, I just kind of figured that through personal experience and or talking to others who share the same race, they would know about all the harmful effects of racism. And I'm sure they, they know about the harmful effects of racism, but in this case, I just kind of figured that would extend to this idea of institutional systemic racism. But also therein lies another racist idea that all people of color talk about race with other people of color. Right? Like, right. Obviously, that's probably true for the most part, but that's another racist idea. Many communities, my hometown definitely included, in which a person of color could be the only person of their race in their school. So they're growing up in a predominantly white community with all white teachers and internalizing white supremacy during their whole upbringing. And even their parents may not talk about race because they know that doing so would, in a predominantly white town, at best ruffle some feathers and at worst it could have some real consequences. Yeah, that really reminds me of, I'm reading on and off this book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Acho. And he was a professional NFL football player uh, who now has built up this video series of uncomfortable conversations with a black man. And that was his big, almost two parts of his life. He was saying the first part was he lived in a predominantly white community. And then he went to college and like went into the NFL mm. and where it was predominantly black. And he started like seeing and recognizing racism in different ways that he never had thought of before because of what you're saying. Mm. Being in that community, he internalized those things too. Yeah, it it shows that, again, sort of the inequitable sense of sort of exhaustion or fatigue or frustration that can come with being a person of color because you kind of have to play two roles. You obviously want to be, and I'm obviously speaking for people of color here and I don't mean to, but what what I believe is going on is these two roles of I see race, I recognize race, I see its harmful effects, and obviously I want to do something about it. But then on the other hand, I, I know that there's consequences to that and I could lose things, right? I could ruffle feathers. So you're kind of trying to be like, so what, what do I do, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, it's, really a, it's really sort of being stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it makes me think of intercultural development inventory, which I think we've mentioned before on this podcast, but essentially it's a, it's a measurement tool that measures intercultural competence. So one of the orientations on there is called minimization, which is where most people fall into. Mm-hmm. And this is the tendency to emphasize similarities and minimize differences. And then, then you fall into two different groups, whether you're in the dominant culture group or the non-dominant culture mm-hmm. group. And of course, it really depends on the context, but clearly for you and me as white men, we're in the dominant culture, right? But those in the non-dominant culture, so someone, you know, it could be in this case a, a black man, they have to adopt sort of this go-along-to-get-along strategy, mm-hmm. is what it's called, to really essentially survive. So this means that they avoid bringing up differences and inequalities that are really easily visible to them but not so much the dominant culture in order to not rock the boat. So in in this instance, I can't help but think that folks in the non-dominant culture also end up internalizing beliefs or principles held by the dominant culture. So of course, I'm just speculating here. I I don't know if this is the case with the man you're talking about at lunch. Hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But it could be the case with this this man. You know, it's a good reminder that racism is a mindset and a system. Right. So anyone and everyone is susceptible to buying into it. So that's just really important to remember. Anyone and everyone is susceptible to buying into uh, racism, white supremacy. And it also is a good reminder that in the grand scheme of things, we're not fighting individuals. We're fighting a system. Mm -hmm. We're we're fighting a a system mindset and and a system that has been built and entrenched. And that's really, if we're going to call it an enemy, that's the real enemy. And, you know, myself included, I'll be the first one to admit it. I get caught up in fighting individuals, right? And that takes up a lot of time, a lot of energy. And in the grand scheme of things, that does not disrupt the system. And I think white supremacy, if I could personify it, wants us to do that. It's like watching me do this and be like, yeah, you're just wasting your time. Right. And, and, and here I am in the background doing my thing and, you, and you're not doing anything to disrupt. So it's, it yeah. also like links back to, again, the definition of racism, how both components of it, of racist policies and racist ideas are so important because racist ideas can be grand ideas. Mm. Like you're an outward white supremacist, but they're these little yep. subtle things that everybody can internalize. And like Ibram X. Kendi said, his long held beliefs that 
only white people could be racist or have racist ideas, he totally flipped when he really started studying this and evaluating his life and everyone else. And like all BIPOC folks can internalize Mm -hmm. racist ideas as well. And that like feeds into racist policies so heavily because they're so subtle and and all those things. And of course, you know, I have to throw in a reminder here for myself and even me, any listeners who might be, be like, oh, okay, then, then it's sort of both white folks and people of color kind of equally need to address racism and eh, hold on yeah. a second, right? Like, yeah. because when you look at a system, I'm reading this, this is good timing because I'm reading this book called The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Mm-hmm. And he talks about systems and, and systems thinking. And, and he talks about how you need to find the leverage. If you really want to change a system, you need to find where you can get leverage, mm-hmm. right? And so as white folks, we have leverage, we have power, we have access to resources, we have access to changing policies and laws, right? Mm-hmm. So so before you kind of be like, hey, I'm off the hook a little right. bit here, or like this is a we're all in this together thing, and we are all in this together, mm-hmm. you know, don't get me wrong. The burden, the onus really is on white folks to change the system because of that leverage and power that we have mm-hmm. afforded to us. Yeah. And also like digging into our identity, I feel like requires more intentional work. We, because of our position, we can easily just not dig into it. Whereas for black and brown folks, it's, you know, even some, even if black and brown folks are internalizing racist ideas here and there, like they're still experiencing racism in ways that white people never will. And so it's yeah. like that additional step that white people yeah. have to do. And we'll talk more about, it's a little teaser for the next episode, but we'll talk a little bit about identity work and this idea of digging into these things because what we face when we dig into these things is that guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, when we start to dig deeper into why do these systems exist, why do these mindsets exist, or why does a black man even, you know, internalize this idea that institutional racism doesn't exist, we inevitably will start to feel guilty. We inevitably will feel shame. We'll inevitably blame ourselves and that we can get stuck there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a teaser for the next episode, listeners, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. How do we get unstuck? How do we move out of that guilt and shame and still still engage with it? Because we can learn a lot from guilt, right? Mm-hmm. We can learn a lot from that. Shame is a different story, but we can learn a lot from, from guilt and how that can really push us forward. But we don't want to get stuck there. So yeah. it also makes me think about the idea of proximity to whiteness so the the idea that the closer you get to whiteness the more benefits you receive and the more you're accepted so we talked about this also in a previous episode about the irish right so there was a time when they were very much against the injustices happening to people of color because they were considered non-white for a time right but then as they sort of got ushered into whiteness or started to blend in a little bit if you will they didn't speak up as much anymore they kind of got they kind of fell silent because they found out very quickly that if they wanted to keep all the benefits and advantages of that come from being considered white they had to be complicit with white supremacy and and as we talked about they even terrorized black people as sort of some like rite of passage mm-hmm. like see we're really serious about this we are we're with you and we're against we're against them right so i think it's really something that's common that happens when someone gets a taste of power you know and they end up turning their backs on their own people you know, that reminds me of what you brought up a few episodes mm-hmm. ago, the last place aversion. Where like we remember we were talking about one through five mm-hmm. and five at the quote unquote bottom, one at the quote unquote top. And it's like, who are you going to give money to? And everybody gave money to the people below them except for number four. Mm-hmm. Because, and they gave money above because that like last place aversion of just not wanting to be in last place. And I think that's yep. an example or made me think of that as well. Yep. And, and also, you know, I, th- I thought of model minority. So there's a lot of white folks, especially those in power, who really appreciate people of color not playing the race card or, or playing, quote unquote, playing the victim, right? So it plays into this belief system for so many white folks and ingrained in you and I and whiteness really in general, especially white men. And, and I imagine if you're sort of part of this model minority, you get a lot of attention for white people, right? You get a lot of advantages or, or you know, this, this, this guy said he succeeded, he made it to the top. Well, there might have been some of that model minority behavior that helped him that sort of go along to get along to achieve success. You know, think about it. It's such a win-win for white folks who want to be absolved from being seen as racist. If you're, you know, for example, if you're good friends or close colleagues with a black person who denies institutional racism... You can always say, I'm not racist because I have a black friend. You know, we hear that a lot. And that person doesn't make you feel guilty or uncomfortable because they, they deny that systemic racism exists. And they don't 
if it, in the workplace they don't question institutional racism, they don't try to disrupt the system, they're complicit with everything going on. So it makes for a really great situation if you're white and in power because you're like, hey, we got this black person, we're tokenizing them, they're making us look good, we're diverse, quote-unquote, but they're also not going to rock the boat. So white men, particularly in power, really have to be mindful of that, of you know, when you do bring in other folks of other races... You know, are they challenging you? Are they challenging your decisions? Are they challenging the system? Are they challenging your policies? Right. right? And and also, also, I should say, like, that's not always their responsibility, too. I should, yeah. you know, that really shouldn't be their responsibility. You have to be the one For challenging sure. policies, you know, yeah. to be clear. But, but you also want to be careful of, like, are, you know, this idea of tokenizing versus really bringing in diverse thought, mm-hmm. right? And people who will challenge the system. Yeah, and the white elite have forever used the model minority as a wedge in between different racial groups Mm -hmm. and the really well-cited one is asian americans we began talking about this in the anti-asian discrimination episode that we had where Mm -hmm. uh, how we had a quota on who could come in from china and other asian countries and who we let in were really wealthy high educated folks and so they came in and they were able to get high paying jobs and it really was like how the government systematically let folks in but then what that what happened was when white people were starting to be faced with possible racism or what have you they would point to the asian americans and be like but look at how they're succeeding mm-hmm. look at what they're doing so you're telling me that racism exists when you just need to be you know talking to other black and brown folks like you need to be more like asian americans and they've created this wedge between those two communities mm-hmm. so there's this huge push right now amongst asian american communities really fighting to break down the model minority myth mm-hmm. and to really like create this sense of community again with all people of color i'm glad you pointed that out because it's something we have to really check and like we're not just looking at this one person and being like see or this one group because that's dangerous and we got to bring in gender here yeah this is a man yeah right and we talked about an episode earlier on leadership that there is this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy around who is a good leader and who's fit for leadership and who does make it up to the top Right. He has a sense of male privilege. Right. And, or this, you know, preference towards maleness when you talk about promoting people and putting people into positions of leadership. So so the, the, that's very much at play here. You know, and then and then even beyond the male female binary, obviously anyone along the spectrum, like even less likely. Right. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why he would see that institutional racism doesn't exist. And I think it's that that male privilege and that patriarchy, that lens that he's looking through. That's again, I'm speculating that makes him think that oh it must not exist because Mm -hmm. i made it Mm -hmm. but there's another element of another system of oppression at play right right, that he's benefiting from yeah and with the racial dynamic sort of that go along to get along playing the politics you know not rocking the boat what will help you advance an organization so in my mind that's how i'm kind of thinking about of how he made it there and then how he denies institutional racism but that's just what i yeah You know, what you said really rang true with me and I hadn't thought of it before, the impacts of being a man, because even like thinking of this individual specifically, where this may or may not have been an all-male school and he may Mm. or may not have also been like a coach in a couple different sports, all that, what we've talked about at length with traditional masculinity. And if you kind of subscribe to traditional masculinity, no matter your race, and that's why those two hierarchies are so important and impactful, because even if you buy into to the masculine hierarchy Mm. and you kind of live that traditional masculinity or like no i got this like the individuality that comes with that i could that was a that's something that you said that i think is very true Mm. and important to recognize that's a really good point yeah i think it he may really actually maybe deep down believe that institutional Mm. racism exists but that toxic masculinity comes in and says well, even if that does exist, like get over yourself yeah. and pick yourself up your yeah. bootstraps. Like, don't make excuses. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Don't play the victim. Be tough. Be a man. Be strong. Push through those racist policies. Push through those barriers. Tough it up. Yeah, like that all kind of washes away mm-hmm. this idea of the the effects it has on people and washes away the the need for equity. Yeah, right. Because equity, I'm sure, in the male toxic male mindset, is softness. Right. Like a handout. Or here, let me let me let me help you along the way. Yeah. And for that toxic maleness that we what earlier we don't want to subscribe to, any of that is just 
that really comes yeah anyway it's yeah it's that's really a, a, i think a really critical point here yeah yeah that that is really at play and it'd be really interesting to to sit down with him again and and maybe start to to move over to sort of this maleness right you know right and where does that come into play right. his experience with maleness and something might come of that but that's yeah that's a really good point yeah so that was a really good takeaway for me i think that my future interactions as I continue to be work towards being an, an anti-racist in my interactions with people of color, you know, knowing that not going in with assumptions because we all have these different lived experiences and they're not, not all people of color are experts in it and, and so many different dynamics. So that was really good for me. Mm-hmm. And the second big takeaway for me was again, how do I succinctly respond? when someone denies institutional racism. You know, the first thing that goes through my mind is where do I start? Like, I don't have 10 hours of podcast time to discuss this, right? And so I, you know, I gave a few examples of some different policies and just kind of like rambled my way through it. But it was it was nice for me to get out of that and be like, okay, this is something I really want to tighten up and do the work to really like see how I, I think about it and what I want to bring to the table when having these discussions. So as we're talking about how to respond to someone, and I'm sure everybody has and will continue to have people who deny different aspects of institutional racism, right? And I want to again bring in your LinkedIn message that we discussed mm. last episode, which was again, a different identity, a white man who also denied institutional racism. And one quote in particular that I said last episode, we'll get to later, and then we brought it to this episode, but the quote was, quote, he's never experienced or seen systemic racism. This notion is purely a myth, end quote. So I want to address this line specifically for white men specifically. So all you white men out there, I think what's really important to note here is that it is essential for us as white men to listen to people of color and women and their experiences. I was mentioning this a little bit earlier. Those with privilege are the ones who can go through life without experiencing or seeing systemic racism. So for this white man to believe he has never experienced or seen it, that does not mean it does not exist, especially when people of color and women are telling you what their lived experiences are of discrimination and prejudices that they have seen. And so I really think it's unacceptable for us white men to discredit them and to call it a myth. You can't just say, hey, I'm hearing from endless people of color about racism, endless women about sexism and calling it a myth. So we really, that's an unacceptable thing and we really have to check that. So that's the first thing I wanted to say to all white men, (laughs) particularly, we have that extra step. We really have to listen, right? It's not just our own, what we, what we perceive. And the thing about racism too, is that it works in very, very subtle ways. You know, you you talked about like your different upbringings and being in different communities. It, It all works in such subtle ways that can sink in with us. And that's really one of the main ways that racism sustains itself. And so just because an institution like slavery doesn't exist, doesn't mean that racism doesn't manifest in other ways. And I I think you and I have laid out quite a few examples of that throughout this podcast. But in general, we want to be able to respond to anyone with any identity who denies it, right? And as this one shows, it can come from anyone. All right, so let's let's start to think about how we can succinctly explain it. And uh, you can give me, like, as we keep going down rabbit holes, we can see how tough it is to succinctly explain it. This is like a good intro where it's not meant to, even if we succinctly get to a place where, hey, I know how to lay it out. It's not period, no more discussion. Yeah. It can like then lead to like, okay, different conversations. Yep. What really has helped me with this is an essay that you and I both read by Alicia Shears called to dismantle systemic racism, white people must be willing to give up their power. And we'll link this in the notes for those who want to check out the whole essay. So um, I do suggest doing that. It's really quite good, especially because you and I have talked quite a bit about power and how we as white men must, quote unquote, sacrifice certain things to truly be anti-racist and anti-sexist and play a part in creating equity and also redefine sacrifice. That's one of you know my big epiphanies one of my many epiphanies that i've had uh, through this whole process is really redefining sacrifice and getting away from individuality because if we make society better for everyone that will in fact be the best way to help ourselves 
All right, so there are a couple excerpts from Shears' article that I want to read at length and then we can talk about because it really has helped me to think about how this succinct explanation can go. All right, so first one, this is kind of a long quote, so bear with me. Quote, white people have a lot of power in the United States. A majority of our country's educators, superintendents, governors, lawyers, doctors, CEOs, venture capitalists, and journalists are white. White people effectively have the power to decide what we teach in schools, the laws we must abide by, which medical studies get conducted, the businesses that get funded, and which news stories and films get the green light. In making this statement, I'm not diminishing the importance of black businesses or black people who have reached leadership positions in corporate America and nonprofits, or black people who have survived and succeeded under oppressive conditions. Instead, I seek to emphasize that by monopolizing power across industries, white people have greater power to shape dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules in society. Furthermore, Many of these rules and norms appear race-neutral on the surface, when, in fact, these power structures privilege whites and disadvantage blacks. This allows white privilege to be reinforced and the power possessed by white people to go unchallenged. These quote-unquote race-neutral rules are taken as matter-of-fact social norms, end quote. So what I want to highlight from this is first white people have monopolized power across industries, right? I think that I like how she really laid out all of those examples of those powerful industries. And by doing so, we have shaped dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules in society that privilege whites and disadvantage blacks. And you might be thinking, well, why do they privilege whites and disadvantage blacks? Well, that goes back to, as we've laid out, the fact that a racial distinction was made at all was very much socially constructed with the racial hierarchy that was seeped into society from the get-go. It has allowed for opportunities for white people while denying it to black and brown folks. So those dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules in society have deemed what is acceptable. And that continues to this day in applying to jobs, in the workplace, in the education space. And it's the most subtle it's ever been. Like, think about when it was less subtle, how much impact that had. So that has resulted in centuries of economic oppression, educational oppression, judicial oppression, because of these power dynamics and social norms that were created. The other thing that I've actually been thinking a lot about this lately is the idea of race neutral. Mm. The fact that these are race neutral on the surface reinforces the idea that it's it's very subtle, right? I want to explore the idea of race neutral. Maybe this Mm. is a future episode that we do because are race neutral solutions the right solutions? I read like a really big report on this from The Economist of like, to have race-neutral policies, but really that impact lower socioeconomic folks and therefore like a lot, you know, people of color, is that the way to go? Anyway, that's like a side conversation. But the fact that the race-neutral, it works the other way too. It seems race-neutral, but it impacts people of color significantly. Mm -hmm. And there is no, we are recording this in 2021 and there's just this huge debate. I don't even know if debate's the right word. It's a huge cluster of voter suppression laws going out throughout the country. This, there's no better example of a race neutral on paper thing where they're like, no, no, we're just trying to create voting to be safe for everybody. There's nothing about race in this at all. When in fact, it's undeniable that it impacts people of color significantly more, right? So like that's an, an idea of a race neutral on paper. You're talking about the, the voter ID that, yeah, or what the, specifically? So the the different states throughout the country, like uh, Texas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, they're putting in these new voter restriction policies into place where it's some examples are, like you said, the ID, like you need a government issued ID to show when you go to vote. Another one is the amount of polling places that you can go. And so limiting it in more congested areas so that the lines in like urban voting stations might be two hours long, whereas voting lines in rural is like you walk up and vote. 
Um, there's the mail-in voting, uh, restricting how you can mail in your vote and where you can drop those off. So all of these different things after this last presidential election that have gone into place that impact people of color's vote more than white people. But it's on surface, it doesn't say, hey, we're going to prevent black and brown folks by voting by creating really, really long lines in the communities in which they live. Instead, they're making these race neutral on the surface rules. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think race neutral is possible. Yeah. Like, I just don't think that exists because, like, as Alicia Shears says, like, white people hold the power, they create the culture, norms, the rules. So kind of everything by default, every decision that's made, even at a more, even a subconscious level, because again, like you said, it looks quote unquote fine on the surface, mm. but at a subconscious level, it's, it's always going to be conforming to what white power, right? right? And white norms and white principles and white, va- you know, so I just don't think it's possible to, yeah. I mean, unless you've done the deep, deep work in creating equity and creating inclusivity in a, in a group or, or a, a a business or a policy or a policy yeah. then yeah it's possible but i just think by by default if you haven't really done anything it will it will not be race neutral i think that's a good point and then the other flip side is like right now there's a i can't remember the exact policy so forgive me but it's like a some kind of advantage for child care it's in that realm and on the surface it's race neutral because it doesn't explicitly say within the policy or the proposed law that this is for white folk only or for you know black and brown folks only but what it does is it impacts lower socioeconomic people more and because of all that we've talked about with the poverty cycle and the racial hierarchy there are more per capita people of color and lower socioeconomic statuses so that race neutral policy will impact positively people Mm -hmm. of color more Mm -hmm. even though in the policy it doesn't say We need to improve the lives of black and brown folks because in the world, the white world that we live, that wouldn't pass, right? Right. That would not become law. So that's a way that they're using race neutral way to try to support people of color. So it's, it's very, that's why I think we might have an episode on it because I kind of want to think more about it. It's kind of an interesting, can we do that, but not shy away from racism? Because we have to have that education. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting one. Well, it'll, it'll inevitably any sort of semblance of an, of equity, any sort of policy or law or whatever that does actually create equity. I mean, we'll be faced with white rage. Yeah. Right. Like, and at best white discomfort. Yeah. Because it will feel unfair. And it, and technically it is unfair, right? Because equity is not equality. That's right. And so, yes, objectively it will be unfair to white people, but in order to create equity, that's what we have to do. And as, as we keep quoting all the time, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yes. Right. So that's where, that's why we see the hubbub around critical race theory. And I mean, there's, there's people getting arrested at these school board meetings because they're the rage from white people Mm. is coming out, Mm. you know, because it feels like oppression to them. Right. Because we're taking, we're taking something that is, that is seeped in, in white norms, right? White power. And we're bringing in something new and it just it just that's what we that's what happens right right so of course you know and this is where we need to be careful with white exceptionalism you and i'd be like oh at least i would never throw a fit at a school board meeting but but you and i probably in many cases at least for me personally feel a little discomfort right we see something and be like that's not fair or "Ooh, i don't really like that mm-hmm. like that's our first initial reaction right. and if we're not reflective if, if we just kind of gloss over that feeling well th- that's sort of be the default right but if we we need to stop and really reflect and be like why am i feeling uncomfortable right now why is why is this policy making me feel this way where is this coming from do i need to check this yeah right is this me feeling like it's oppression when it's actually something equitable? Right, right. right. So, so that's kind of a question that we kind of always have to keep going through our minds as white and men, especially then you talk about male privilege yeah, too. Right, right. So there's just sort of this two, it's double, double the work, right? right? To really check ourselves because by default with being in a white supremacist country system, we will feel that discomfort. Yep. And so that's really my big takeaway here from that first excerpt. Norms that privilege whites even if seemingly race neutral yeah the other one, one other thing i think about with with norms that privilege whites is the iq test yeah if you looked into that at all but so the iq test was developed by a white man dr lewis Terman, and who believed in eugenics right and he was this was, this was he was quoted to say this quote 
High-grade or borderline deficiency is very, very common among Spanish, Indian, and Mexican families of the Southwest, and also among Negroes. Their dullness seems to be racial. Let me say that again. Their dullness seems to be racial. They cannot master abstractions, but they can often be made into efficient workers. Oh, that just gives me chills. Yeah. yeah. Right. From a eugenic point of view, they constitute a grave problem because of their unusually prolific breeding. Just, just this, this is the person who invented the IQ test. This is the premier intelligence test, right? Like this is how we determine who is intelligent, who's not. And this is what this guy says, right? And maybe he, he changed later in life. I don't know. But, but at the, at the founding of this test, which really has not, as far as I know, has not changed much over time. It's, it's seeped in those beliefs, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it's very much tied into the racial hierarchy and white supremacy because it absolves white people from any guilt or responsibility because the reason white people hoard all the wealth and positions of power isn't because of racism. It's because white people are inherently smarter. Yeah, it's a race-neutral test on the surface, right? Like exactly. You look at it, yes. and, it and it's the equal measure yep. for everybody's intelligence. Right. But then you dig into it, and like that's the person who created it. And if that's that person's belief, like how is that seeping into yeah. to this test? What is it really measuring? How is it measuring those norms and what mm-hmm. we considered smart from the people who created this country and the dominant culture that created yep. those measures of smartness, yep. right? That is a really good example of a very clearly impactful item, right? right? The IQ test is very impactful. It has like been leveraged more so in the past than yep. it is now, I think, yep. but it, it like has leveraged people to be really, really like make a career because they scored really high on an IQ exactly. test. If I would take an IQ test, I'd be very low, I'm pretty sure. Like, <laughs> like so bad at those kind of things. But you just like think yeah. about, you know, how impactful this was uh, for yeah. so many people and it based clearly based in like some of these white privileged norms. Yeah, you're right. It is more of an antiquated thing. I, I mean, I don't remember even taking it. Maybe no. I did when I was really young, but now it's SAT, PSAT, GMAT, all these things. But it's a whole nother. That's a whole. A I mean, whole again, thing. more race neutral. But yeah. you know, I, I don't know anything off the board. But I'm sure there's been people look into those tests and be like, it's definitely biased towards white people. Yeah, I've right? started to see colleges. I think the University of Minnesota, right, is stop requiring mm. SAT and ACT scores. Yeah. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see if more and more schools start doing that because I think you're right. They're yep. they're recognizing some. Yeah. Of those and things. as Elisa Shear says, like white people hold power in all, everything, right? So that includes. these tests oh man yeah and college admissions is one of the most that's like maybe the best example of the impacts generationally of white privilege like who got into schools and who didn't there's a lot of really good art like you can our listeners out there if you're interested in that like google racism and college admissions there's a lot of really good articles and stuff you can just find online that it's it's pretty incredible yeah because then even you know like maybe generations ago when they did take the iq tests all these white folks got into like a yale or harvard and now through the the like what is it the legacy yeah. thing so now they're like their children even though they're not taking the iq tests because white folks saturated these schools they're now getting all their children and grandchildren into these elite schools yeah. which of course leads to you know education and homeownership are one of the you know the, the really the gateways to wealth in this country exactly yep a real quick break here before i get to shears second article excerpt But to remind our listeners out there that we have a new way to connect with us to keep these important conversations and learnings going. So we have our new website, www.themodernwhiteman.com. I don't know how long new is new, but it's been up for a while, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around this continuous work, and subscribe to our newsletter. It's a new way to receive updates on our new podcast episodes, new blog posts, and various relevant topics and future ways to get involved. And also, it is easier than ever to get in contact with us. We have a contact form on there. We truly love hearing from listeners. starting to happen more and more, which is so cool. So be sure to check that out. Subscribe to the newsletter, and please feel free to reach out to us. Okay, so the second excerpt from Shears' article that I want to round this this, uh, whole how to respond succinctly thing. Quote, what if black people don't want white people to sacrifice their power? This is a very real possibility. Black people might reject my proposal entirely and may seek to rely on their own merit to get ahead. 
they may want continued access to opportunity rather than what they perceive as a handout. The only thing I can say is that evidence shows that when white people don't have enough merit, they rely on their privilege to access institutions of power. White people often do not turn down what could be considered handouts as long as these handouts advance their goals and allow them to accumulate more power, end quote. So this really describes, you know, the, the man that I had lunch with, right? Like a you know, black man who relied on his own merits get ahead and thinks everyone should has that same opportunity to do so. And the main thing that I want to pull from this that was really helpful for me has to do with her quote of evidence shows that when white people don't have enough merit, they rely on their privilege to access institutions of power. Mm i.e. what we were just talking about mm -hmm. with you know, Harvard's and the college admissions. Like that is a really good example of how you can rely on your privilege to access those institutions of power. I think about networking too within like getting a job. Yes. You know, how many white people, including myself, you know, I, I have no way to prove it. There's no, no way to know, but there's probably been cases where I've gotten a job or lots of white people have gotten a job because they connected with the right person. They, when we have that social capital, right, the social capital to get a job and, you know, a recruiter or a hiring manager might overlook that we don't have enough merit or we don't have enough experience, but they'll hire us not only because of that connection, but also because we're white, yeah. right? Because then there's that bias with interviewing. So that's another that's right. thing I think of. Yep. A couple of thing, things I wanted to talk about with merit. You know, merit, that, that's such a, we could just, we could do a whole episode on that. Because totally. if you think about merit, merit is, you know, based on, again, this idea that white people control the power, the principle, the norms. Like, white people have, have defined what merit is, right? The definition of merit is the quality of being good or worthy. So, as we've talked about, in a white supremacist nation, in a patriarchal nation, good and worthy is white and male. Yeah, could any anything be more subjective? Yeah. Good and and worthy right yeah <laughs> yeah and for those who have power control what is good and worthy so no wonder people who are not white and not male str i shouldn't even say struggle because but it is a struggle to get somewhere by merit because merit isn't even they're, they're set up to fail right, right. because right. they're not male and they're not white so you know and if they do get to the top a lot of times it's either because they're being tokenized as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier with, yeah. or and or they acted as a model minority who had to code switch their way into the good graces of white people. I'm really happy you called that out. I think that's really important here for like a good takeaway from this episode, I think is like check, like you said, checking that mm -hmm. kind of, are we thinking of this as a model minority? Are we thinking of this? Are we tokenizing in any way? Are we really have this person of color at our organization as like a pointing to and being like, see, like we're a diverse company and see, we have a leader here and yep. And like really questioning that, I think is is yep. important. And pointing to that person saying, "Well, they made it here by their own merit." So as a way to be like, "Well, see, then institutional racism doesn't exist, right? Because right. we have this person of color who made it by merit into this position." But the, the other thing, and this is something I, I've I've picked up along the way listening to BIPOC folks, is this idea of "prove it to me twice." Have you heard about yeah. this? Yeah. Yep. So this idea that that Black Indigenous people of color have to do something twice. To really prove that they're actually capable of doing that thing, so someone you know in the workplace might might just kill it at this project, right? Or you know they they create this amazing product. Let's say you know they're, they're the project lead for this. Managers, leaders will be skeptical and be like, okay, before we promote this person, let's make sure they really actually can do this again, right? They, 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 let's make them prove it again yeah. in order to be like, okay, now they're worthy of promotion. Whereas a white person. They do it once, they're promoted, or they don't even do it at all. Yeah. Like it makes me think of, I, I talked about the book Mediocre, mm -hmm. which is all about how incompetent white men get into leadership, right? Right, right. So, So we have white men who don't even do anything good in the workplace, right? They're totally incompetent, but yet they still make it to leadership, right? right? Because of merit, they, they, they still quote unquote make it to the top based on merit. But merit in this case is because they're white and male. And I know I'm simplifying it, but but it, sometimes that's the case, yeah. right? Or they have that that social capital, or they they just are in the good graces of people in leadership because they're white and male. So because leadership, also white and maleness, defines what good leadership is. So, yeah. so really thinking about getting rid of that fallback privilege, so we can rely solely on merit, is kind of what equity is, right? That is what we're trying to create. That doesn't exist right now. So the argument of pull yourself up from your bootstraps 
you know, we're aiming for that to be the case. You know, when I think about equity, so this man also said to me in the lunch, like, I think it, we just need to focus on equality, the same for everybody, not equity. Um, what I wish I would have said to him is that, <laughs> Isn't that, the truth? Is that equity leads to equality. So like that's what equi- the end mm-hmm. goal is equality. So when you think about equity, but it won't happen in our lifetime. So we we'll need equity for a long time. But to put in systems and practices of equity, the end goal is equality. So like there we we agree that we'd love that to be the case. But we need equity right now because equality is not possible. I just I can just visualize you sitting up in bed in the middle of the night, like <laughs> your eyes just like coming awake. This equity what... leads to equality. Why did I say? <laughs> That's what I should have said. Yeah. Of course, like three days later too. Oh, you know? totally. Yeah, I just like couldn't stop thinking about it. And and so combining that too with Shears's first excerpt that I read, where she says it doesn't take away from blacks who have succeeded under mm. oppressive conditions. So that's really important here too, because like he said, you know, hey, I was able to do this, and a lot of you know black and brown folks who who do feel this way, it doesn't take away from that. It doesn't take away from you hear a lot like honestly, like the easiest one to be like, what about Barack Obama? What about Oprah Winfrey? Look how powerful they are, and look at what they've done. It does not take away from what they have done or what they have achieved. Right? They have succeeded under these conditions. So my second takeaway here really has to do with merit. So I'm going to combine my two takeaways. We have norms, right, that that have shaped our whole culture that have privileged whites plus merit. All right, so those are like my big things. And I'm going to give you, Paul, my shot here of how I would succinctly respond to somebody. And I'd Ooh. love for your reaction. All right, so here we go. So I'm at a lunch and he says, you know, I just don't think that uh, institutional racism exists. I think everybody has the same opportunity. So here's what I would say. Since the beginning of our country, white people have monopolized power across all decision-making industries. By monopolizing this power, white people have shaped dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules in society. Many of these rules and norms appear race-neutral on the surface when, in fact, these power structures privilege whites and disadvantage people of color. The reason for that is the socially constructed racial hierarchy that has existed since the late 1400s, initially created to justify the slave trade with the core message that white is best and superior. So with the power structures privileging whites... Evidence shows that when white people don't have enough merit, they rely on their privilege to access institutions of power. Black and brown folks do not have privilege to fall back on when they do not have enough merit. This reality doesn't take away from people of color who have succeeded. All of the black and brown judges, CEOs, policemen, people who work at schools, right, in leadership positions, they have the merit and potentially more merit than a white person would have needed to get to those positions. But in creating equity, we want to get rid of the privilege that privileged folks can rely on and only rely on merit. To do that, we have to recognize and eliminate racist biases, prejudices, and policies that have been seeped into society. So that's my, my as succinct as I could, all that we've talked about essentially from the beginning of this podcast as like a gateway into mm-hmm. a discussion. It's pretty good. What do you think? I, I think it's great. You gotta bring like a bring a mic with you and have it in your back pocket. And when you just finish, like, I'll just pull it out, drop it, th- say thank you for coming to my TED talk, <laughs> drop it, just walk out, just walk out. But then then you'll you'll walk back in and be like, oh, I forgot to pay for my lunch. <laughs> That'll be really awkward. And I'll be like, oh, I forgot to also say that <laughs> yeah, uh, we're yeah. going Wait, towards equity. equality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's great. I, and yeah, I, I, clearly, as you know, I'm sure you'd admit, there's no way to really really like succinctly put it all in but i think that's a really great way of of capturing i mean each sentence is just like chock full of stuff right we could unpack yeah, each, each right. thing and but yeah it's it's a great way to really kind of lay the foundation of, of and, and it's it's it, it speaks to it again as a system like th- these are you know what i like about it is, is it minimizes the possibility of fragility and defensiveness because it really talks about how a system was was created and foundation was was made yeah there's there's so much in beneath the surface of what merit is and and it's it's 
it's controlled by those in power. So yeah. anyone who's not in power, you know, who don't doesn't fit those cultural norms, values, anything like that, it's it's almost a losing battle to even try to get anywhere with merit. Yeah. So how so how do we as white men flip that? You know, if we do find ourselves in leadership, which is most of the case what do we do? I always want to throw that in there because we that's probably what you know our listeners are and, and what I'm thinking about too. So what do we do about it? Yeah. Let's do you have talk off the about bat? it. <laughs> we don't know. I'm going to succinctly respond to that next yeah, time. Okay. okay. No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think no, it starts with, with that acknowledgement. Yeah. You know, I think the awareness that that even in, in our own minds, based off of our upbringing, based off of white supremacy, based off patriarchy, the way we define merit in our minds and the way, the way we see people using the workplace example, see potential leaders or people we need to hire, we're looking through that lens of good and worthy that's entrenched in white supremacy and patriarchy. So I think that awareness is, is huge yeah. because it makes us rethink that bias or we are aware of that bias when we're looking to see who, who to promote or even like if someone does a great job at a project, we'll be like, we've got to catch ourselves with that racist idea of like, eh, they're a person of color. So yeah, obviously awareness leads to action. So Exactly. And what will another teaser for next episode is that we're really talking about the process of actually defining the process that we keep talking about to be anti-racist and how important it is to do personal awareness work and personal work. I think there are nine steps and like the personal part is the first seven. So Mm. like to be really aware and having these conversations is then like, yeah, we have to have this base. I don't know if I love the word confidence, but like this base, like I understand the environment and I've challenged myself and I've gone through all these things to then check those things. Yeah. So this in, this individual work is really important. Yeah, I, I understand why you hesitate with the word confidence because that's something that has been like, dangerous and toxic for white male. But when you say confident in being anti-racist, yeah. you know, that's a different story. Yeah, I think. right, right. Right, it's confidence in what? Yeah, confidence is so important, but it's like, we can't only look to people who exude charisma and confidence, sure. right? Like you have yeah. to find what confidence means for you. Yeah, but yeah, that's a good point. So I am going to, because of my uh, my succinct response was still <laughs> not that succinct. I'll write a little blog post on this, so you can check it out on our website if you want to actually see it in writing. Because people like me can't hear something one time and <laughs> like just totally let it sink in. I'll have to look at that many times. So. Know that that'll be up. And I just like this too, because having these conversations to build this stuff up, then the, people will come back with follow-up questions. I was gonna say, And yeah. like having these yeah. conversations to understand why, like if they're like, hey, what are examples of racist policies? What are examples of racist ideas? It's a gateway to, to more conversation. So I like how we really have gone off on some, some good little side combos here too. So until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble and do the work. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.